0: episode of America's Constitution.
1: I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akhil Amar. Hello, Akhil. Hey, Andy, and uh, this one's, I think, a a big one, this episode. Well,
0: Well, it should be. It's our 156th episode, which is 52 times 3. So although it's not I guess it's not three years on the calendar somehow because uh, there's more than 364 days in a year. Um, still, we're getting up to our third anniversary, so we're going to kind of wrap up our third year with some big episodes. Why is it a big episode? Well, not just because of the calendar, but also because of uh, of another calendar, which was the the calendar of the Colorado Supreme Court that that uh, where they handed down the ruling that we mentioned, you know, in the kind of preface to our. Uh, episode last week because they did us the favor of issuing a 200-page opinion five minutes before we were going to post our <laughs> our episode, um, and so their ruling is out there. And now people are anticipating that the Supreme Court is going to possibly uh, weigh in on the question of whether or not Donald Trump can be disqualified from the ballot in in this case Colorado, but perhaps you know other states as well down the road. Um, uh, under Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, and if, as if you've been living in a foxhole somewhere, the, the Colorado Supreme Court said that yes, indeed, not only
1: can he be disqualified, but he is disqualified from, from the, the Col- Colorado primary. From- Yes, from the Colorado primary ballot. So it's not just one court, Colorado court. It's going to be a bunch of courts, a bunch of secretaries of state, a bunch of officials in different places, perhaps using somewhat different standards, asking different questions under different state laws. So there's all of that. And I'm going to argue that at the end of the day, Congress does constitutionally play an important role. They can throw out ballots that they think are improperly cast for ineligible candidates, even if others have have allowed those ballots to to be cast. Some of that's new. People haven't heard all those issues before. And I do want to announce that, you know, God willing, I intend with uh, my brother Vic to file an amicus brief in the Supreme Court once certiorari is granted in this case as we expect it will be and people listening to this podcast episode and the ones that will follow because we're not going to be able to do everything just in this one episode. This is the big enchilada, really big. People who listen to this podcast and we will be getting a sneak preview of all of that. This is a public podcast. It's not ex-party. It's, it's open to the world. I'm hoping Uh, Law clerks on the Supreme Court and elsewhere might listen to this podcast, and it will help them understand some of these issues. Andy, I I know I'm cavelling just a little bit, and and I'm actually patting you on the back way more than myself on the back on our third um, anniversary. Not only are we really proud, am I really proud of what we've done together in this podcast over three years, but on this issue about 14th Amendment Section 3, we have been the, not just podcast of record, but the media outlet of record. We scooped the New York Times and the Washington Post and, frankly, Strict Scrutiny and every other podcast that's out there and every other media outlet that's out there because we've been taking seriously 14th Amendment Section 3 issues for a very long time. I think this is our sixth episode on that. Everyone in the world is now talking about Bode and Paulson, Will Bode and Mike Paulson, our dear friends. We brought them on for three different episodes, an hour and a half apiece. We brought on the podcast Gerard Magliacca, another former student whom I adore, Mark Raber, whom I don't know so well, but I'm getting to know because of this issue. And we brought them on this podcast, and now everyone is talking about them. The Colorado Supreme Court really did cite these folks, and favorably, and repeatedly. And the people who've been listening to this podcast have therefore been way ahead of the game. They have seen the future um, way before people listening to some of the mainstream media who weren't following this so much because it seemed to some people like, oh, it's some weird little theory that's not going anywhere.
0: Right. I mean, I, I don't know that we can take credit for its the the important the uh, prominence of the issue, but we certainly saw its constitutional implications early on, and that and that it was worth discussing. That it wasn't a throwaway provision, it wasn't a dead letter, and that it was that there was some complexity to it. And of course, we owe a big thank you to uh, to to the experts that you mentioned for giving us their time. I mean, you know, Bode and Paulson have been on for four and a half hours with us. So that's, you know, that's a lot of, of their time. And of course it takes
1: more than four and a half hours to produce four and a half hours of podcast. <laughs> but yes, the experts, I'm, I'm somewhat expert on some of these issues. I actually am, but these guys are very expert. They are making the arguments that everyone is, we said is going to have to actually focus on and, we were right about that. Everyone is focusing on Bode and Paulson and Magliocca and Graeber. And we I predict that will continue to be so going forward. And today we're going to talk about a lot of other people who have weighed in, and we're going to give you, audience, a scorecard, you know, because you need to know the players and who's saying what. And it's not just liberals versus conservatives. It's way more interesting than that. Just to repeat, it's not just that they came on for four and a half hours, um, Will Bode and Mike Paulson, um, Andy, they didn't do any other media outlets. Will has his own podcast, and he didn't talk very much about it because it's a Supreme Court-focused podcast, and it wasn't at the Supreme Court yet. Still, technically isn't, but it's on the doorstep. Today, we're
0: going. Here's what we're going to do: we're going to we're going to say, okay, the Colorado Supreme Court has ruled. So what? You know, what's different? What's different now than before they. They rule both in Colorado and elsewhere. And then we're gonna talk about, okay, what are the remaining issues, um, if, if there are any? I mean, did this settle everything? Is the court even gonna t- maybe not take cert on it, in no a case closed? What are the issues that the, if it goes to the Supreme Court, that they, that they are going to be looking at? What do they have to look at? What might they not look at? Questions of method which is a a big theme of our podcast. In other words, how might an originalist look at these issues? How might someone that has a different uh, constitutional interpretation method um, look at these issues? And then we're going to get to the pundits. We're going to get to people that have weighed in. We're going to look at, well, okay, what mattered to them? And, you know, what kind of approach did they take? And what do we think about it? Some of the this is not an all inclusive list of everyone that's important or is weighed in, but some of those who were going to review what they've had to say um, include Larry Lessig, Lawrence Tribe, Sam Moyne, Ruth Marcus, Noah Feldman, Jesse Wegman, Gerard Magliaca, George Conway. And Rick Pildes. And of course, Ed Whalen as well, who's been on our podcast. Yes. And if I've left you out, pundit, uh, we'll we'll get to you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So first, you know, what's new as a result of this ruling? So one thing that I think we had talked about, even uh, in the context of the district court ruling, was that the district court had made certain findings of fact. Um, So what is the status of those findings of fact now that the Colorado Supreme Court has weighed in?
1: Well, for the present, they are intact. The Colorado Supreme Court did not uh, really challenge those findings. The U.S. Supreme Court will have to decide exactly how much weight it's going to give to those, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about today.
0: You know, it's interesting what you say because, you know, people have been referring to the ruling on the Colorado Supreme Court as a 4-3 ruling, but in some ways it's not really it doesn't really stand as four three when it's going to the Supreme Court, does it? I mean the on the issues that the court is going to be looking at probably, it's not really four three, is it?
1: No. Um, the on the federal constitutional questions, it was at worst four one, um, from another point of view, four to nothing. Two of the three dissenters were really focused on state procedural issues that aren't really not. Uh, within the purview of Supreme Court of certiorari review. On one question that we've been very emphatic on, that of course the words of the 14th Amendment um, apply to presidents, the Colorado Supreme Court was actually four to nothing. On that, there, there are several important federal constitutional questions, but on that one in particular, four to nothing. Yes, of course, the presidency is covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, both as an office that one is disqualified for if one took an oath and then violated it by insurrection and of course the kind of oath that would trigger disqualification includes the presidential oath what about if
0: in terms of these findings of fact let's assume that the and i guess the court could ru- the supreme court could rule different ways on this well let's say that the court leaves the colorado ruling largely intact or entirely intact What significance would those those findings of fact then have for other states that might have uh, hearings down the road? Um, And would that depend on on what the the Supreme Court might say about them?
1: If the United States Supreme Court upholds what the Colorado Court has done and says that the findings of fact made by Colorado are sufficient and, and permissible under the Constitution to deny Donald Trump ballot access, it need not be the case that that binds other states. Here's an obvious reason why it might not. Another state might say, well, what Colorado decided was that more likely than not, Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. But in our state, the rules for ballot access are different. Um, Our state requires that there be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So the Colorado findings didn't even purport, another state could say, to decide that. So of course they don't quite bind us. A third state could say, well, those facts are well and good, but actually under our state law, we're not allowed to take someone off the ballot merely because they're constitutionally ineligible. That will be decided by other people in terms of counting the vote rather than in terms of ballot access. So because there are 50 states and they have different election regimes, even if the Supreme Court were to say, well, these findings of fact actually are valid and Donald Trump was uh, allowed to make his case and he lost his case fair and square in Colorado, that does not necessarily mean that all the other states would have to fall into line with those findings of fact because those findings of fact might not be decisive given differences in state election law across the 50 states, differences of burdens of proof and procedure. Another state, for example, might say, oh, in our state, if you want to do that, a jury needs to decide. Oh, So now we're back to darkacy, which we talked about in a previous episode. So different states are allowed to have different procedures, uh, different standards of proof, different rules for ballot access. And given that, a minimalist U.S. Supreme Court approach might uphold what Colorado did, yet leave it open for other states to diverge. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court is, I think, going to need to come up with a national set of standards on certain issues, like is the president covered by Article, by yeah. 14th Amendment Section yeah.
0: 3? Yeah, and we're going to get to yeah. those in just a minute. So, so it's interesting cuz listening to a couple of themes of of our podcast over the last couple of years are coming through one is that you said uh, a little while ago that well it's really for nothing or maybe for one the Colorado case and that's because the the other dissenters were talking about issues of state law and the supreme court's not going to you know shouldn't be weighing in on that so this notion that that state supreme court justices, or you know, are the ultimate arbiters of state constitutions or state law? Um, that should sound familiar to anybody that listened to the ISL stuff from Moore versus Harper. Um, that's coming through again. Um yes. So that's that's interesting. And then you know, and then related to that is the, your notion that well, you know, states have different election laws, and so. This also is sort of an ISL theme that we said, well, you know, in some states, you know, the governor in many states, well, in all states now, governors have vetoes. And so governors are part, part of the legislature. So this notion that there are different state structures, um, especially when it comes to elections uh, or national elections even, is, is very important. That, yes, we have national elections, but they're very much structured on a state-by-state basis. And that is really important to think
1: about here. Yes. um, Today, some states, let's just say congressional elections, some states have commissions, some states use referenda, other states don't. In 1850, there there was a moment where governors play a big role in some state lawmaking processes and not in other states. Yes, the ISL idea is different, and it's a Brandeisian idea. Different states actually have different legislative systems. And what is the legislature in a given state actually varies from state to state. Today, Nebraska is still unicameral, for example. And for similar reasons, yes, different states, even though it's a national presidential election, oh, it varies dramatically from state to state. Some states make it easy to cast absentee ballots. Other states, not so much. Some states have a two-week process of, of voting. Others are basically same day voting. Some states have same-day registration. Other states actually have a 30-day registration. Felon disfranchisement rules for presidential elections vary from state to state today. And actually,
0: importantly, uh, procedures for determining who gets on the ballot vary from state to state under under various state statutes. So, for example, we've seen this in uh, Minnesota. For example, citizens were able to to Petition the state supreme court directly and without really a, a suit, and and the court was obliged to hear that. In Colorado, it you had to have a certain standing, and then there was a suit in Maine. You there are now citizens that petition, not there's no suit. They're petitioning the secretary of state of Maine, who will make a decision under the statutes there, and then that. Decision can be appealed to the main Supreme Court. So, so state by state, these processes are different, and th- and they've been in place all along. In fact, interestingly, uh, in the Colorado case, the a case was cited, a federal appellate case was cited, where Justice Gorsuch, then Judge Gorsuch, ruled that a challenge to the a ruling by the Colorado Secretary of State. That a candidate was ineligible because they were less than thirty-five years old was valid. That the Colorado Secretary of State was had the power, and this was an appropriate procedure um, for doing that. And this is Justice Gorsuch, and Judge Gorsuch. So that you know, we're seeing that state by state, uh, these procedures vary on this very issue, and this is not something that was just invented. You know, for this case, these are procedures that have been. You know, in, in place before.
1: And not just procedures differ, but the substantive rules differ. So you said, oh, in Minnesota, you can go straight to the Minnesota Supreme Court. And Mike Paulson said that actually in, I think, the, the first episode that we had with him. And Mike Paulson <laughs> lives in Minnesota and teaches in Minnesota. So he said, oh, you can go straight to the Minnesota Supreme Court. And you couldn't do that in Colorado. You had to go to the trial court. Okay. So that was more onerous. On the other hand, it, you see, Trump will be on the primary ballot in Minnesota, and at least if the Colorado ruling stands won't be because they had different substantive rules. The Minnesota Supreme Court basically said, yes, you're allowed to come here, but you lose on the merits, the challengers to Trump, because our state substantive election law, when it comes to ballot access, especially for primary elections, we in Minnesota do not enforce eligibility criteria for primary elections. Primary elections in Minnesota, said the Minnesota Supreme Court, are basically decided by the the relevant political parties. And we, the state, don't come in with our own additional set of criteria. So in Minnesota, it's a party-based process, and we don't enforce eligibility rules for primary ballot access. It's a matter of substantive Minnesota law. And that's not just true for the presidency, but for all sorts of other you know, primary elections. In Colorado, it's different. And it's not just different and when it comes to Fourteenth Amendment Section Three, it's different when it comes to age rules, for example.
0: So the result of the Colorado litigation at the state level was that due process took place. Okay. In other words, a majority of the court ruled that the process that was held at the district court and uh, was adequate. Right. So now you have a state finding that the state process was adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be relevant, possibly, to questions uh, to, to whether the when the Supreme Court considers the case, uh, to whether or not they think due process took place. Um, so here's my question for you. I mean, we, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but since we are talking about state versus federal here, is that the end of the story? The fact that the state Supreme Court has ruled that there was that the process was adequate at the, um, at the district court level?
1: No, not necessarily. The US Supreme Court could say, we don't think that actually this was enough of a hearing. Even though Donald Trump got to participate, they could say, well... We think it should have been by jury. That's the jarcusy issues. I don't think actually it should be by jury uh, as a constitutional requirement, but you could imagine a court you know, saying that. And, and our audience who's heard the jarcusy episode knows why it shouldn't be by a jury, because it's not really a suit of common law. It's more regulatory. It's not about damages. It's much more like the SEC or the um, OSHA law, which some people apparently call the Osh Act. Um, and that's a little inside joke for those of you who heard the Jarcusy episode. So the U.S. Supreme Court could, in theory, say, we hold that you need a jury trial here, or we hold that you need a full-blown trial with subpoena power, because actually the this hearing was a little bit of an expedited hearing under election law, and it, it didn't, and his uh, representatives, and produce evidence and all the rest. So it was completely on the up and up and satisfactory. Here's one complexity, one argument for it being particularly permissible, and we're talking about due process here, is technically Colorado, if it really wanted to, doesn't even have to hold elections for the presidency. It can have its its own process. You could have state legislatures decide. And as late as 1860, my friends, South Carolina picked its presidential electors by state legislature. They didn't actually put it to a popular vote. And at the founding, that was true in a lot of states, not just a few. So you could say, given that Colorado doesn't even have to have presidential elections as a matter of federal constitutional law, given that Colorado as a matter of federal constitutional law doesn't have to have primary elections, gee, we should cut Colorado a lot of slack in how it's structuring its process, because this is all kind of as a matter of grace, as so to speak, in Colorado. That's one argument. The other argument is, no, listen, you you don't have to have primary elections at all. You don't have to have general elections of the electorate at all. But if you're going to do it, it has to be on the up and up. And especially if you're going to do it saying, this person isn't eligible because of 14th Amendment Section 3, well, that comes with its own set of safeguards implicit in 14th Amendment Section 3. That's another possible, you know, ruling. But I'm giving you the range of possibility here.
0: We've generally felt that state Supreme Courts are the best judges of state law and state constitutions. And you saying that it's state law and the state constitution is laying out the procedures by which this will be determined. The state Supreme Court has said this was an adequate procedure. Why isn't that the end of the story?
1: Well, I tend to think that there needs to be federal constitutional review, but on this particular issue that you're now, the very specific one, I would think it should be somewhat deferential for, you know, reasons having to do with Moore versus Harper. That's not going to be true on pure federal constitutional issues of the following sort that we're going to talk about. Is the present covered mm-hmm. by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Uh, is this only about the insurrection of 1861 or future insurrections? You know, Do presidential oaths right. count as when they're violated the way other oaths do because presidential oaths say preserve, protect, and defend rather than support? Those are all fa- – and, and there's a bunch of others. Um, do you need a congressional no. statute? Section 3 mm-hmm. issues, and the Supreme Court there will decide on its own. But on this earlier one that you're asking about – you know, certain election procedural law, you could argue that this is the heartland of state autonomy as determined by state constitutions as ultimately construed by state supreme courts as to which the U.S. Supreme Court technically has some review because these are technical federal questions in certain ways, but should be rather deferential.
0: And again, we're talking about now what's different um, after the Colorado Supreme Court has ruled. And so this is one point that's different is, uh, that may be relevant, that they've made this determination that the process was, was adequate. Another thing that, that might be different is now we're talking about this case going to the Supreme Court. Well, we weren't talking about it being at the Supreme Court when it was at the, uh, you know, at the level of the Colorado Supreme Court. So they couldn't go straight from the district court to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, now people are saying you can go to the U.S. Supreme Court. So why why can you do it now, uh, but you couldn't do it before?
1: Yes, because under this is not a Jack Smith situation. Jack Smith, in a different kind of proceeding, was in a federal district court, and he tried to leapfrog the federal court of appeals and go directly to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court unanimously said no, but statutes permit certiorari before judgment in the court of appeals— within the federal system, and the Nixon tapes case actually went directly, way back when, went directly from a federal district court, Judge Surica's court, leapfrogged the DC circuit in effect, and was fast-tracked to US Supreme Court. That's permissible under federal jurisdiction statutes within the federal system. When you're in federal district court, you can skip the federal court of appeals, petition for was called certiorari before judgment, and the Supreme Court's allowed to do it. It almost never does. It did it in the Nixon tapes case. It didn't do it this week in the Jack Smith case about President Trump's immunity or, or, or not from criminal prosecution, ex-President Trump's. I think he deserves no immunity whatsoever. If it When it comes to the Supreme Court, I'll file an amicus brief to that effect. Vic and I um, will do so. Now, this is a different system situation because you're in a state court system and the jurisdictional rules are different. And from the first judiciary act on section 25, the idea has been that you can go to the Supreme Court only when you've worked your way up through the state court appellate system as far as you can go, and you've been turned down, and once the highest court of the state to which you could appeal has basically ruled against you, then and only then can you go to the Supreme Court under Section 25 of the original Judiciary Act, which today has a different statutory number. Now, Andy, this is what I wrote my very first piece, even before I was a law professor on, it was the piece on the basis of which I was hired to teach at Yale Law School. This is a field called federal courts or federal jurisdiction law. I teach it pretty much every year. This is really interesting and, and, and technical stuff. It's at the heart, Andy, of the words that made us. I have a whole discussion of Martin versus Hendricks Lessee. That's all about Section 25 of the Judiciary Act of, of 1789. All sorts of technical jur stuff, but in a nutshell... Yes, for reasons having to do with respect for state court systems, we say, no, you don't go state from a state's um, trial court to the US Supreme Court. We wanna hear from the highest court of the state. We wanna give it a chance first to, to, to weigh in because under a case called Erie, it's really the last word on the meaning of state law, not the state trial court. So it would be silly for the U.S. Supreme Court to jump in without having heard from the highest state court that's capable of hearing that issue. And none of that's true when you start out in a federal district court and the u.s supreme court says well usually it's nice to hear from the federal court of appeals get their views This is sometimes called ventilation or percolation we'll have them take a crack at it first but if there's real need to decide something quickly at the end of the day you know there's no eerie issue there's no state law issue in these cases we're going to hear it directly ourselves and hear it fast and that's what they did in the nixon tapes case and that's what they did not do in the jack smith case
0: okay well this is very interesting akil you started this discussion by saying that uh that that the court did not grant Jack Smith's motion for an you know, expedited review bypassing the circuit court, but uh, in fact, and, and that it was unanimous. Uh, in fact, I think, you know, this is a question of uh, where they, they said there were no recorded dissents. So there might have been dissents, I think, that weren't recorded. Um, so we don't know that it was unanimous, but we don't know of any dissent either. So it could have been unanimous.
1: Thank you for that very helpful technical correction. Andy, before we leave this point to move on to many, many other points, let me connect to another set of issues we've talked about in the past. So I connected to the the jarcusy issue and, and jury trial and all the rest. You're asking me in part about how you get into a court system at all. You can't go directly into federal court under 14th Amendment Section 3 quite so easily and just say, I, Akhil Amar, don't want Donald Trump on the ballot, okay? Uh, So I don't think I probably have standing in a federal district court to keep them off the ballot in, let's say, Colorado. Let's imagine I was a Colorado resident or something. So I don't have standing in a federal court to do that. But Colorado has come up with state laws and state procedures saying, oh, you can go to a Colorado state court, and it'll have a hearing of a certain sort. Even if you're not Donald Trump, if you're someone other than Donald Trump you know, want to keep wanting to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. We have different, in effect, standing rules in state court. States are allowed to do that, and our audience has heard about some of that when I, I, I've talked about how you litigate Fourth Amendment cases um, and. The U.S. Supreme Court has said, oh, well, if someone paws through your trash when you stick it out on the sidewalk, you can't actually bring a suit directly under the Fourth Amendment because you don't have a, a proper property interest in your trash. Oh, but maybe a state could actually give you a property interest in your trash or something. And maybe in that case, you might be able to sue eventually, not just in the state court, but in the federal court. So states can sometimes enable you to sue, state law i am give you standing that you wouldn't otherwise have. Now, here it's easy. States are allowed to have more liberal rules of court access, and they do in Colorado. So Akhil can't go to a federal court and get Donald Trump off the primary ballot, but he can go to a state court, and someone did. Now the question is, well, if that's just the rules for state court, why is the Supreme Court getting involved in this? Because Akhil, I thought you just said, you know, this isn't for federal courts. No, Akil said it's not for a federal district court, you know, for Akil to bring a suit. But now we have a ruling from the highest court of the state. And it's a ruling not against Akil. Maybe he'd be out of luck and the Supreme Court wouldn't care so much. It's a ruling against Trump. And it's denying him, in effect, ballot access. And he's saying, I have a federal constitutional right of a certain sort to ballot access and I'm being denied ballot access because of a certain interpretation of 14th Amendment Section 3 that I contest. I don't think presidents are covered by Section 3, and I don't think that it's about insurrections after 1861, and I don't think this is enforceable unless there's a congressional statute, and I don't think it covers mere violations of a presidential oath. And those are all federal constitutional questions and I was affected directly by an adverse ruling by the state on those federal constitutional questions, so surely I should be out on appeal to go to the Supreme Court. And there is a Supreme Court case, I'm not going to go into all the details, that strongly supports that thought. The case is called ASARCO, A-S-A-R-C-O. That's an acronym for something or other. It's not the OSH Act, but, but it's something. And it's a Justice Kennedy opinion So the case is Asarko versus Kadish. It's 1989, and it stands for the following proposition. A plaintiff who lacks standing in federal court can permissibly bring a lawsuit in certain situations in state court. And when that plaintiff wins in the state court system all the way up, the defendant, has standing to go to the United States Supreme Court to complain because the ruling was against it. Maybe the plaintiff, had the plaintiff lost, wouldn't have been able to go to the Supreme Court. But Asarco says, whether or not that's so, the defendant is now the person in effect harmed by the state court judicial ruling, and the defendant can petition the Supreme Court for review. And that's the Asarco case. Andy, I believe it's decided by Justice Kennedy.
0: Yes. So you said that Donald Trump uh, would be petitioning because of his federal right to appear on the ballot, Um, that he had a federal right to appear on the ballot. What kind of a right is that?
1: That's his broadest right um, in the structure of the Constitution. A narrower version is the following. At the very least, I have a right, he could say. And, and he might lose, but, but it's, he, he's the person to, to bring the lawsuit, and he might lose on the merits, but he says, I have a right not to be denied ballot access on the basis of an improper interpretation of 14.3. Maybe they could have kept me off the ballot for all sorts of other reasons, but they didn't use those reasons. The reason that they picked was 14.3, and that's a federal issue, and surely You know, the U.S. Supreme Court should be ruling on this. Now, Andy, what we've just done, and I'm not going to go through it in exquisite detail right now, is talk about a doctrine that I teach in Fed courts. It was on my exam this year. It's called the Adequate and Independent State Grounds Doctrine. Two important cases are called Murdoch versus Memphis and Michigan versus Long. And it's possible for the Supreme Court to actually hear the case at the initiation of Donald Trump. It's theoretically possible it can say, we agree with Donald Trump on all these grounds. We send it back to the Colorado Supreme Court. And it's possible to imagine the Colorado Supreme Court says, okay, he's ineligible, not because of 14th Amendment Section 3, because we in Colorado have certain rules about presidential elections that we think he flunks. And so we reinstate, you know, after proper judicial proceedings, the same ineligibility, but under purely state law grounds because of our state constitution and our state statutes about ballot eligibility. That's a conceivable, theoretically conceivable outcome. But surely Donald Trump would say, I'm being deprived of something that's pretty important to me on the basis of what he I claim is a misinterpretation of the U.S. Constitution. I surely should have standing to raise that issue on appeal at the U.S. Supreme Court by broad analogy to the Asarco case.
0: Speaking of exams and education, I'm going to take a moment to offer some information for our listeners who are hoping to gain continuing legal education credit by listening to this episode. And courtesy of the New Jersey State Bar Association, you have that ability. So what you will do to gain that credit, and this is in particular for members of the New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or New York bars, but also where, you, where just going through this procedure will result in your getting this credit. In every other state, virtually, you can Do it through reciprocity, so you should check with your state bar for that procedure. But anyway, the procedure for those in the three states I mentioned at least is to go to podcast.njsba.com, podcast.njsba.com, and then you're going, you fill out some information. You're going to be asked for a code. The code this week is revenue. R-E-V-E-N-U-E. Revenue. It's not case sensitive. So you enter that code, you fill out the form, and you'll get your credit. And uh, I should mention that the New Jersey State Bar Association is really into our coverage of uh, of Section 3, and they've actually created a uh, a Section 3 package where you can listen to all or, or of the episodes that we have on this, the five preceding episodes. Uh, for those of you who need a lot of credit because it's getting to the end of the year, you can binge listen and do that, and they have actually a... Uh, you know, a discounted price on that package. Now, when we say price, of course, our podcasts are free. Um, The credit, as lawyers know, is normally not free. And so this is how you can get that for, for less money. So thank you to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. And special thanks to Lisa and Bob at the New Jersey State Bar Association. What great partners to work with. Happy New Year. Okay, so back to uh, our, back to the substantive part of our podcast. Now we've we've talked about what's new uh, as a result of the of the ruling. So now we're headed to the to the Supreme Court, and of course, when you get to the court, they can rule in all sorts of ways. But I think one thing about this case is that to get any kind, well, even a limited ruling, they're going to have to reach. Certain questions. So let's let's just kind of go down the, the list of questions before uh, we're not going to answer them all right now. But I just want our audience to, you know, think about these questions as we go through the punditry, especially to see which of these questions they may be weighing in on. And most of these questions were addressed actually in the bowden and Paulson article. They recognized that these were questions that the court would, that a court would have to reach. So let me just go down the list. One, they're going to have to say that Section 3 is not just about the Civil War, that it's possible to have an insurrection that isn't that insurrection that's covered by by 14.3, or other events that are covered by 14.3, not just insurrections, that it's self-executing. This was a big theme of the bowden paulson uh, paper. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, it doesn't require a, a particular congressional statute that says, know, here's exactly what you, you have to determine and there's here's how you do it and things like that, that 14.3 that itself uh, provides for uh, various actors to utilize it in various proceedings. That due process took place. This is a big issue that a, a lot of the pundits have been talking about. So, for example, the, the court might say, well, what's the bar for due process? Like, you have to have this, you have to have a hearing or you have to have... Uh, you know, evidence, or you have to have a right of appeal, or whatever, um, and so and was the bar met in in this case? And then, as Akhil has alluded to, the fact that the presidency is uh, one of the offices that you can be disqualified for under fourteen three, and that the president himself, the presidential oath of office, um, is an oath that. Is addressed by 143. One of the oaths that, if you take this oath and you violate it, then in in the ways that 143 discusses, then you're out. They have to determine that the perhaps that the First Amendment doesn't bar enforcement for statements that were made. That the, that the standard for. Determining that an insurrection, that a person participated in an insurrection, because on the basis of various statements that they made, is not barred by the First Amendment. Um, And this is also discussed at length in the Bowdoin-Paulson article. Uh, That the state can have stricter requirements than the federal constitution in order to be on the ballot. And that a state can determine for itself facts that are relevant to ballot access. So, in other words, the proceeding similar to the one that Colorado had. They determined various facts, and then on the basis of those facts, they're determining whether or not Donald Trump can have access to the to, to the ballot. So, those are a lot of questions that the Supreme Court might have to reach, or you know, or or might reach.
1: Andy, that's great. Um, and on the procedures, yes, we talked about what the standard of proof is. You know, more likely than not, preponderance of the evidence versus uh, beyond reasonable doubt. Some people are saying, oh, you need a, a jury or something. Our, our friend Sam said uh, made some reference to that in the New York Times. But, Andy, I think you covered the waterfront and can't wait to actually now talk about what the pundits have, have said and w- which ones we agree with and which ones not so much.
0: So we're going to go through what some of the pundits have been saying. And in, in doing that, I think we'll be elaborating on some of these questions that we just laid out. As we've looked at these various articles, as we alluded to earlier, it's striking how people who you know uh, are on on the left and are very anti-Trump, uh, nevertheless, are saying that uh, some of them that uh, the court should rule uh, against Colorado, that they should say that uh, you know Trump can be on the ballot, or or that uh, you know Colorado was proceeding was was inappropriate in some way. And similarly, people on the right have, are some of them are saying, um, no, this was this was correct and uh and clear and he's out so uh so not all but this is not just a strict party line vote okay so we're going to start off with some of the scholars uh that have written and again this is this is the lay press that we're talking about we're not going through you know the law journals now but the lay press so there was a an article by uh, someone who we haven't talked about that much on this podcast but uh um but you know well lawrence Lessig professor at the uh, Harvard Law School. He had a column in Slate uh, called The Supreme Court Must Unanimously Strike Down Trump's Ballot Removal. Okay, and um, his column was a little bit of an outlier, I would say, um, because, I mean, obviously you know where he stands based on that, uh, that title, but uh, he talked a lot about question of, of officer and the presidency and, uh, and that sort of thing. So what is
1: your, what, what is your comment on, on this piece, Akil? A lot of the people that we're going to talk about are people that I'm close to. I mentioned that's a little awkward not to name drop, but because I have a little bit of a sense of how their mind works and what their strengths are and, and maybe what their strengths aren't. And just in the spirit of full disclosure, I have to say, you know, Larry is someone I adore. I hired him many years ago to be my teaching assistant. He was kind enough to invite me to be at his wedding. I was at his wedding and I've been to his house and he's been to my house and I really love him. And this piece that he wrote is one of my least favorite pieces among the scholarly pieces. And I'll tell you you know, why that's so. And he's written some amazing stuff over the years. Here's how he begins because he's not result oriented. And this is, this is admirable. He's not a Trump guy. Here's what he says. Donald Trump is an astoundingly dangerous candidate for president. He is a pathological liar with clear authoritarian instincts. Were he elected to a second term, the damage he would do to the institutions of our republic is profound. His reelection would be worse than any political event in the history of America, save the decision of South Carolina to launch the Civil War. Okay, and I, I agree with that in the main And I disagree with almost everything else that my friend, my dear friend Larry says in in this piece. But I just want to begin by giving him a tip of the hat because he's not being result-oriented in a standard way. And see, the liberals are in disagreement about this. So I'm with Larry. I'm with Harvard's Larry. He's at Harvard Law School, but not Harvard's Larry Lessig, but Harvard's Larry Tribe. And maybe we'll hear about him in just a moment. He has an excellent piece. And they disagree. And they are Larry's on the left at Harvard Law School. And so this is why it's interesting. They, they disagree. And they're both anti-Trump people, but they can understand the Constitution differently. Now, I think Larry Lessig, my dear friend, starts to go off the rails even in the next sentence, so the first paragraph is great. Didn't love the title headline, but authors don't always compose the headline. The Supreme Court must unanimously strike down Trump's ballot removal. Really? Hmm. That's a very, very you know bold piece of advice to offer. Unanimously, and they must do it. Okay. Here's the next sentence. That fact, all the facts about Trump, has motivated many decent lawyers and law professors to scramble for ways to ensure that Trump is not elected. Well. Larry, I love you, but how can you read other people's minds? You know, Maybe actually many decent law professors have done this just because they think it's right on the law, not you know necessarily because of their views on Trump. They might even have those views on Trump, but how do we know that that's what's motivating them? Because I promise you, if you talk to Will Bode and Mike Paulson, and we have, they didn't say we hate Trump. They actually said, we're originalists, we're con law people, and we started to look at this, and we actually went back and forth, and we weren't sure about this and that and the other thing, and then we talked with each other, and, and we talked ourselves into this position because, and simply, we believe it's the right constitutional answer. Okay, so I, I don't love, actually, you know, motivational analysis, even though I'm probably going to indulge it myself, so it's, it's hard not to, uh, so I, I didn't kind of love that. Now, and here's what, uh, how that paragraph ends. If the court is to preserve its integrity, wow, you're really raising the stakes, Larry. It must unanimously reject the Colorado Supreme Court's judgment because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not apply to Donald Trump. Now, I'm going to go through his specifics in, in just a, a minute, but you know this is not about integrity. I actually think the court should unanimously on the basis of what I think I understand thus far, I could change my mind. But at present, I'm I'm inclined to think it should unanimously uphold what the Colorado Supreme Court did on a 50-state solution that will we'll we'll talk about. A kind of a modest position. But if I don't get. A unanimous ruling, I'm not gonna say the court lacks integrity. Judges, you know, honestly disagree about things. If the decision comes out the other way, I'll be I'll be disappointed, but I won't go around saying it's because the judges lack integrity. So I, I didn't love the tone, frankly, of that. And I think that on the specific issue that he's taking, that he's teeing up about whether 14th Amendment, Section 3, applies to Donald Trump, because remember, there are a whole bunch of issues, you know, you could talk about, you know, procedure, you know, whether there was enough, on but on this issue, which is like a pure issue of constitutional law, oh, Larry, you couldn't be wronger in my view, I love you, but wow, that's wrong, at least that's my view. Okay, and I'm going to defend it now by directly engaging my friend Larry, back to Larry. So here's what he says. The puzzle in section three is that it seems as if the framers of that text were just sloppy in their enumeration. No, you're sloppy with all due respect in reading it because they're absolutely clear and what it says makes complete sense. That's what I assert, I'm gonna try to prove it, and I've written about this. I wrote about this in 1997, 1996, excuse me, in Stanford Law Review, I'm with my brother Vic. The Claw, back to Larry. So Larry, that's simply wrong. They weren't sloppy at all, they were good lawyers, and they said just what they mean to say, and they meant what they said, and presidents are officers, full stop, easy. They hold office, I'm gonna give you some more, but The clause, section three, bars insurgents from being a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, to hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state. Back to Larry again. That's he's quoting. The obvious question is why they would enumerate senator or representative, not to mention elector of president, but not the president. Yeah, well, that's the obvious question, and it has an obvious answer, Larry, because when you read the Constitution itself in five different places, it is clear that there's a distinction between executive and judicial positions, because those are offices, and the people who hold them are officers, and legislators. It goes all the way back to England, things called the PLACE Act. Let me just read our audience, and I talk about all this. It's called the incompatibility clause in lots of articles. So here's the language of Article one, section six. No person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. So that's obviously saying, being in the House and Senate, those aren't offices. Those are different from offices. You can't be Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Senator Hillary Clinton. You can't be President Hillary Clinton and Senator Hillary Clinton, okay? You can't be Judge Hillary Clinton and Senator Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton had to resign from the Senate when she became Secretary of State, okay? Um, And Lloyd Benson had to resign from the Senate when he became Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, And Jeff Sessions had to resign from the Senate when he became Attorney General. And that's how it works. Because there's a difference between executive and judicial office, that's the word, and legislative positions, which aren't strictly offices, they're public trusts, the way the Constitution uses words that go back to English law. Here's the Supremacy Clause. The senators and representatives, before mentioned, and the members of the several state legislatures, and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and the several states, shall be bound, blah, blah, blah. So and it's it appears in several parts of the Constitution. There's a, a fundamental distinction between executive and judicial posts, those are called offices, and legislative positions, which are often called public trusts. Okay? And it just goes back to England. So they're not sloppy, Larry. They're just using the words the way they've been used in the Constitution forever, and in many other places. So you're saying that the framers of the text were just sloppy, and I'm saying, no, they weren't. With all due respect, the the interpretation you just, uh, the sentence that you just wrote was actually um, sloppy.
0: He compounds the error in the next sentence where he says defenders of the Section 3 argument suggest this was a mere drafting error but that the clause applies to the president nonetheless since the president occupies an office under the United States. And I, I have to say that I haven't seen defenders of the section three argument saying that this is a
1: drafting error. Yeah. I'm a defender. This, that's well, not my position. I don't think that, I, right. I don't think this is wills. I don't think this is Mike's. I don't think this is Gerard. I don't think this is Mark's. No, we say, actually they said it clearly because presidents are officers. And cabinet officials are officers, and judges are officers, federal judges and federal U.S. Supreme Court justices are officers, and senators and representatives aren't as a general proposition. And this was central to an article that Vic and I wrote about uh, presidential succession long, long ago. And our audience can hear this. It's in our first three episodes. We don't think, actually, that legislators should be in the line of succession because we don't think they're officers within the meaning of the Constitution. You see, so I could be wrong about this, Larry, but I've been wrong forever, and I've written a ton of things about this. Our position is not that it's a drafting error at all. Okay, so so you're not even engaging truthfully. Now there's a problem with op-eds; they're short, you know. I really, respectfully, but strongly disagree with that, and and we can't both be right, audience. You know, so you're going to have to decide for yourself. But I've given you, you know, some pieces of evidence. Now he goes on to say. And in any case, you know, we lawyers um, uh, who uh, uh, think that section three does apply to Trump argue, it would be absurd to read the clause to apply to every elected official, including electors for president, but not the president. Okay, So he's gonna say why it's not absurd. I don't think it, I have to prove it's absurd, truthfully. I just have to prove it's covered by the words, and I do. But in fact, I do believe it would be absurd to think otherwise, and I'm not alone. Gerard Magliocca thinks the same thing, and so does Mike Paulson and Will Bode, and so does Larry Tribe. And we all use the word absurd, or sometimes we use the word silly. I think that was Michael McConnell's word. So, so we don't have to prove that, but we think we actually can.
0: I might add that, uh, that no member of the Colorado Supreme Court thought so either, um, that there that, that wasn't one vote for that proposition.
1: Right, you are. And we're going to hear from other scholars, and I think none of the other scholars that we're going to uh, talk about take Larry's position on this. Not, not one. In fact, yeah. some of them go out of their way to say, well, that's you know, clearly a losing argument. People like the great Richard Pildes, like the great Lawrence Tribe, who are very distinguished constitutional law professors in their own right, you know, cited multiply by the Supreme Court over the years, uh, both in the top 10 uh, citations of the Supreme Court, uh, top 10 most cited scholars, as is Will Bode, as is yours truly. So actually that's four of the ten right there. Back to Lessig. And we're not going to do this for every single one, but since he takes the strongest position and it's, I think, the most clearly and illuminatingly wrong, um, I'm going to go through this in in greater detail. So he invokes the work of my dear friend, Kurt Lash. Kurt was my student. I love him. I I probably wrote 10 letters of recommendation for him over the years for all sorts of positions. And he is a 14th Amendment expert. And he's raised real questions about the Bode. Paulson, Magliocca, Graeber position. He hasn't clearly said they're wrong, but he's raised some questions, and they have answered him with compelling evidence subsequent to the essay that he wrote, raising questions. Okay, so he suggested that the crafting of Section 3 to omit the president was not an oversight. I claim it was not crafted to omit the president. It's possible that an earlier draft of something mentioned president, and now it doesn't, but that wasn't because they were omitting the president, that's because they believe that the presidency was already covered because the president, to repeat, is an officer. He holds an office. I do solemnly swear that i will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States, okay? That's because you're an officer. And the impeachment provisions talk about removing the president from office. Kurt says earlier drafts mentioned the president by name. They did. But he presents no evidence whatsoever that when the presidency was removed by name, anyone, not one person, said it's because this doesn't apply to the president. He, to this day, has not presented a single person from the um, Reconstruction period who said it doesn't apply um, if Jeff Davis wants to become president of the, the United States in the future. Jeff Davis is a, a famous insurrectionist who violated oaths that he took as Secretary of War and as Senator and other things. And Magliaca and Graeber have identified since Kurt's peace dozens with an S of people saying, oh, of course it applies to the president. Okay.
0: There's some work out there also, you know, it still leaves the question out there of. Well, OK, if the draft included it and then they took it out, why did they take it out? And uh, so and and you've said, well, if they took it out because they wanted to exclude the president, someone would have said that. And no one did. Say yes. it. And that's compelling. Right. But in addition, there, there there has been some scholarship out there that that directly addressed this and shows why they took it out. You know which is which is that it was actually causing confusion. Why did you say this? Isn't the president an officer? Um, and then they say, "Yeah, yes, of course he's an officer." And they take it out. So there is there is there is there are reasons why they. And this is similar to the Reverdy e. Johnson uh, quote that we that we had, where he he raises that and 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 a similar conversation takes place. So actually, Kurt Lash has been answered that question, not just. Yes that no one said it, but, but we actually now know why they made the changes. And they were not because the president, they, people thought the president wasn't an officer. So I really think that that argument stands in ruins.
1: I, I agree. Then back to Larry, who actually then backtracks a little bit. He says there are lots of debate about the following related issue, whether the president is properly described as occupying an office of the United States, okay? And he says, Well, this is ambiguous, linking to the Colorado trial judge, who actually said, oh, presidents aren't officers. And he says, well, this issue is ambiguous, not among any scholar who I think really has made any kind of good argument. I know there are scholars on the other side, and I think this position is absurd, silly, totally wrong. Okay. Um, but in any event, a decision by a Colorado trial judge it doesn't count for very much weight. And so Larry then does say the Colorado Supreme Court made a strong argument that the president is an officer. And of course, they decided that, they smacked down that Colorado trial judge by a vote, not a four to three, but four to nothing. Because on this issue, none of the dissenters challenged that. Okay, so we've had four state Supreme Court justices weighing in on one side, no state Supreme Court justice of, uh, in Colorado or any other state saying, otherwise, the scholars on this side are, you know, include Gerard and Mark and Will and, and, and Mike and Akil. Michael McConnell, who is very skeptical about all sorts of other aspects, and Larry Tribe, and Rick Pildes that we're going to hear from, and many, many others. Um, This is the overwhelming consensus of actually the professoriate on this issue, I believe. Avic, of course, who was the co-author of that piece that I wrote long ago on this issue. So then Larry compounds the problem by doubling down and saying, here's why they perhaps omitted the president. First, he says, Lash argues that maybe, you know, this made sense because the framers of 14th Amendment likely expected it to apply to civil war insurrectionists alone. Well, then why didn't they say the insurrection of 1861? So textually, that's highly implausible. That if you think they're just idiots and sloppy, oh, they don't know what they're saying. But if it applies to the Civil War insurrection and nothing more, you could just say the late insurrection or something. They didn't say that. That's a compelling textual point. Now, Kurt actually has spent a lot of time on the 14th Amendment, and you're wrong, okay? Okay. You're just, and I've actually just been writing about this today, Andy, and you've seen what I've written because they knew that the South Carolinians were batshit crazy in the 1830s when they tried to pull this stuff. And they knew that South Carolinians had been claiming a right to do this in the uh, 1790s and 18-teens and 1840s. And wow, they would have been idiots if they thought that this still wasn't going to be a concern going forward because they absolutely were worried about that. And that's what Mark Graeber says. And he wrote a whole book about this. And he spent a lot of time on the 14th Amendment. And that's what I assert as well. And, and the language so totally supports us. They do not say the late insurrection. They just say any insurrection going forward. And they're worried about the South going forward. And this is not how we construe anything else in the 14th Amendment. We don't say, oh, they were only worried about race discrimination in their generation or "fundamental under Section 1 or fundamental privileges or immunities in their generation. No, that's not what any other feature of the 14th Amendment is. Our friend Jack Balkin comes on, and he's the expert on Section 4. I'm not. But he says, oh, they were worried about all sorts of games that the South might be playing about Confederate debt and and Union war debt and all the rest.
0: Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a particularly weak argument when you consider another argument that people are make, which we haven't discussed yet. Um, and I'll just bring it up here, which is there are arguments that are people and people are making that well, we shouldn't enforce 14.3, even if it means that he should be disqualified. We shouldn't enforce it because there's going to be blood in the streets or because people are going to be angry and it's going to be bad, bad for the country. And I think, you know, Sam Moyne says this in a sense. Well, they thought that way at the time here also, okay? In other words, they, they knew that, there was, that, there, that the South was persistent, and that, that there would be resistance to uh, elements of the 14th Amendment. And indeed, there were. Indeed, they, you know we, we have all sorts of problems in reconstruction and afterwards and Jim Crow and so forth, and the clan and, and and this, that and the other. Um, and so so they knew that was going to happen, and it did happen, but nevertheless, they passed this and they enforced it. So it's the, the notion that they weren't worried that someone was going to be, you know, an insurrectionist uh, wouldn't wouldn't be elected president. They knew that the South was going to fight. So this is an argument. So both of these arguments are wrong, um, provably, based on the behavior of the drafters of the 14th Amendment themselves.
1: Yes. So here's where we are thus far. Notwithstanding my dear friends, Larry and Kurt, former students, both of them, I wrote... Cl- letters of recommendation way back in the day for both of them. And I really hope it's respectful, my disagreement, but it's emphatic. Either they're completely wrong or I'm completely wrong. There's not a lot of ambiguity here. So I'm saying it clearly applies to the president. It was not sloppy at all. Senators and representatives are mentioned and electors because they're not officers, okay? But presidents are paradigmatic officers. It clearly applies to every insurrection, not just the insurrection of, of the rebellion of 1861. Okay, so those are the two arguments that they've been floating. No, that's just not true. And the only reason you might think it's true is if you're not taking seriously the words that they actually used, which were not sloppy at all. Okay, then they make Larry makes another argument, building on Kurt. He says, even if one assumes... Section three was meant to be prospective, that is to apply to future insurrections. The presidency is a distinct office, it's picked nationally, and, and, and so then the obvious counter is: well, if that's so, if you want you know voters to be able to choose for the president, why are there certain rules about presidential electors? Then and he says, Oh, oh, so glad you you asked why presidential electors are covered. Here's A reason why uh, you don't have to worry about the fact that the president is exempt from all of this. The the compromise was of including electors of the president in the list of covered officers, but not the presidency itself. Here's why that made sense. They said, yes, this is is, um, Lessig. He, He says, the framers of the 14th Amendment decided simply to ensure that the people who would elect the president were not themselves insurrectionists. But if these non-insurrectionists themselves decide to support a candidate who was, you know, then that was properly, you know, deciding them. Don't worry because, and Kurt makes this argument in a more full way, because electors are covered by the 14th Amendment, Section 3. They can be disqualified. You don't need to worry about Jefferson Davis becoming president because the electors can't vote for Jefferson Davis because they're covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But as Mark Graber and Gerard and you and I, Andy, talked about in a previous episode, that's that's not a bad argument. That's a howlingly bad argument. That's a disqualifyingly (laughs) bad argument. That's an argument that once you make it, I actually don't pay any attention to anything else you said because it shows you don't understand things because the only electors who are disqualified are oath-breaking electors. So there are millions of insurrectionists, traitors, but only a few would have taken an oath to come within the provisions of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So there are millions of people who might be happy to be electors and to vote for Jefferson Davis as President of the United States. So, of course, you know, it would be, you know, ridiculous for the framers of the 14th Amendment to think that they solved the problem of a treasonous future President Jeff Davis, not Secretary of State Jeff Davis, not Justice Jeff Davis, but President of the United States Jeff Davis. Oh, we solved that with the the electors clause, which is what Kurt said, and it's howlingly bad, and what Larry is picking up on, and it doesn't get better with repetition, you see. Oh, everyone acknowledges that Jefferson Davis can't be Secretary of War again. It makes no sense, though, that he could be President of the United States. Everyone acknowledges that Jeff Davis, Jefferson Davis can't be a presidential elector. Oh, but he could be president himself. Oh, and don't worry, he's not going to be president because you know people like him can't be presidential electors. No, they can be presidential electors if they're treasonous like him, as long as they just weren't oath breakers like him. So none of this makes sense. I don't have to prove, actually, that your reading is absurd. But in fact, I do believe it's absurd. All I have to prove is it covers all insurrections and it clearly covers the present as an obvious officer in the United States. And I actually happen to believe it really doesn't make much sense otherwise. And you haven't presented any evidence. You've just come up with clever little hypotheses in your law professor chair without showing me anyone who ever said anything like that. Kurt and Larry in the Reconstruction era. And by the way, Kurt, I'm actually begging you, not just inviting you, but begging you to make public your recantation of this because other people are actually now building on what you said and it's been completely eclipsed, overtaken by Graeber's evidence and Magliocca's evidence and other people's evidence and, and you should actually say, you know, because you, you were raising questions they in this and which is what a scholar should do thank you for that that's that's what we, we need to do they've given utterly compelling answers to that and now you should say i'm satisfied those answers are good ones so you've changed my mind that's what you should say kurt
0: just to uh, for our audience i think we we went a little bit quickly over why the elector argument is is absurd um j- just to make it clear here um, the, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, bans electors, right? It bans electors who have broken their oaths. Many people could be electors that did not take oaths. Okay, you, And, most, and that, this is exactly the line that the, that the framers were choosing. In other words, they chose not to disqualify millions of people. They chose to disqualify thousands of people but there are millions of people who could be electors. So you could, if, so the goal here is not to have, is not to set a rule so that no one that votes for president is not an insurrectionist. The goal is to have it so that no one serves as president that is an insurrectionist. And, you know, so the electors clause here does not uh, achieve that, you know, by, by itself, and, and it, it's foolish to assert that it does. OK, so when he when he's talking about Kurt Lash's arguments, in part, he's talking about the the fact that this is a national election, you know, because he's talking about the electors and that sort of thing. Um, and that that would be one reason that this is part of his his rationale, even though it's not supported by what people said at the time for saying, well, it's a national election. So therefore, different uh, standards apply to things like like a congressional election or something like that. And so continuing on this theme of national election so he has a passage that says there's an obvious reason why the only two nationally elected officers would be excluded from its reach and then he says it took mere moments after the colorado supreme court's ruling to see why as texas lieutenant governor dan patrick threatened to remove president joe biden from the texas ballot as retribution you see with every other officer excluded the state official or state court affecting that exclusion would feel the political costs alone. So he's saying, like, it's just a state election, so another state couldn't do anything about it. And this is a national election, so state B could retaliate for state A. So this is not really a constitutional argument, but rather a sort of a consequential argument. So would would you like to address this?
1: This is Larry's most interesting point. I disagree with most of the rest of it. It's a structural point, and he's saying, tit leads to tat. So one state knocks Trump off the ballot, another state then uh, retaliates by knocking Biden off the ballot, and that's why maybe they kept the president, they ex- exempted the presidency from section three. But to repeat, they did not exempt the presidency from, so you're just solving a problem that doesn't exist, okay? You just, you just made that up. There's no ambiguity whatsoever here. It still might be a concern. The best answer to that concern is actually the Moore versus Harper idea. State Supreme Courts and state constitutions are relevant here. The peoples of various states may not want to be disfranchised this way and the state Supreme Courts might very well be you know sensibly understood without Supreme, US Supreme Court review to A state Supreme Court in Texas could say, legislature of Texas, you're not authorized to take this decision away from the voters of Texas in, in this you know, arbitrary and peremptory way. In the small world department, I a- actually happen to know at least one of the justices of the Texas Supreme Court quite well. He's a student of mine, and I think the world of him.
0: It's not even the legislature. This is the <laughs> lieutenant governor that's making this threat. As if he, you know,
1: unilaterally has the authority to do that. Um, My my student is named Evan Young. And if we ever do an episode, Andy, where I give shout outs to great state jurists appointed by Republicans, he's going to make my list. And so we're back to Moore versus Harper and back to the idea, the importance of state constitutions constraining, you know, partisan state legislatures in various ways, state constitutions as construed by state Supreme Courts. Now, here's what's so amazing, Andy, about this. What's amazing is it really does connect back to the I S L issue. And when Vic and I wrote our article about the independent state legislature doctrine, here's our author's note. We we thank people. Acknowledgments. Special thanks to Will Bode. This is in alphabetical order. Will Bode, Evan Kaminker, Justin Driver, Larry Lessig, Andy Lipka. Jason Mazzoni, Ayub, Uderni, um, Michael Shaps, and Hayward Smith. So we thanked Larry specially, you know, and you, Andy, um, for help on this. And in particular, Larry brought to our attention something that's featured in footnote 117 of this piece. And I gotta read you footnote 117 because it's just astonishing. And this was thanks to our dear friend, Larry Lessig, way back when. Note that a state constitution, as definitively construed by the state Supreme Court, might well constrain the choices of state legislatures long before election day. In some states, the state constitution might well prevent the legislature from itself choosing presidential electors. That is, the constitution best read might be read to require that ordinary voters must choose the electors. C. For example, Colorado Constitution Section 20, quote, The General Assembly shall provide that after the year 1876, the electors of the Electoral College shall be chosen by direct vote of the people. Now, I didn't know that. The person who brought that to my attention was Larry Lessig, who actually had been involved with Colorado faithless electors back in 2016, all the rest of it. It's such a small world you know, that we're talking about this, but Larry, the answer to the new Larry Lessig is actually the old Larry Lessig who understood that state constitutions as construed by state supreme courts might constrain this sort of thing, because of course you know, under the original constitution, a legislature could say, screw it, you know, we're not even going to let the people of Wisconsin pick the, uh, the, presidential, the presidential electors. We're going to pick them ourselves. Oh, but the Wisconsin, and, and at the founding, they did. But today, they might not be able to because the S- Wisconsin Supreme Court construing the Wisconsin constitution is going to say, no, in Wisconsin, actually, our tradition is the people. Pick, but, but this tit for tat, you know, is a concern not just about ballot access, but more generally. And our answer has been often, uh, typically, state constitutional law as construed by state supreme courts. And Larry, we have you to thank for that because, you know, um, we, Akil and Andy um, and, and Vic, because you're the one who brought that provision to our attention. And it's of, of, of all the states, the Colorado Constitution. So small yeah, I world. Mean,
0: just you know you just I think you sort of skipped ahead in in this just for our audience. I mean, the idea here is that you know state a goes through a process like Colorado where they have you know a hearing, a bench trial, whatever they determine various facts um they just and then they appeal to the state Supreme Court and they say, yes, you know, considering everything that you've done, uh Donald Trump is disqualified, okay, and then state B Texas in this you know hypothetical scenario says oh we don't like that we're just kicking Joe Biden off the ballot but with no due process no actual you know uh, facts behind it just as a retaliatory thing and so that's a cl- clearly lack you know uh, you know lawless um, and lacking due process procedure and so that goes bef- ultimately obviously would be challenged goes to the Texas Supreme Court and they say you didn't follow the Texas state constitution, the, so this your action is void, and that's, that's BS.
1: Yeah, because the state, Texas state constitution, because of fair procedural rules, but also because there's no authorization for this in Texas law, fairly uh, read, my I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. It's totally lawless in every right. conceivable yeah. way, and, and we have guardrails against that. So that's Larry's best you know, argument. He's concerned about that, but- We've already solved it, Larry, and in part because of the Moore versus Harper case, in part because of what you and I and Vic worked together on, talking about the importance of state constitutions and state Supreme Courts here. And that's why, Larry, you should be standing with the Colorado Supreme Court here, because they did nothing wrong. They do not deserve to be unanimously reversed.
0: So I think this argument is wrong three different ways. Okay, it's wrong because first of all, there's a claim that the, the the argument starts off that this is the reason that they disqualified the president, okay? That they that they left the president out. And of course, our argument is no, they didn't leave the president out. You're just wrong, you know, as a matter of of text of constitutional interpretation. That's number 1. Number 2, he says, well, you know, it, you could be wrong about that and here's why they had a reason. To, to do that, okay? And that's wrong as a matter of ISL, um, as you just showed. And then his third uh, r- reason that this argument is wrong is, is that he's actually making two arguments here. If you read the last sentence of that paragraph, he says, such behavior is obvious to lead to a tit-for-tat and a breakdown of our entire electoral system. So that's a consequential argument. That's an argument that even if that isn't what they meant, we shouldn't interpret the Constitution this way because it's bad for for America, and so that's not really a law argument. Um, it's just a, you know, just a, a consequential argument. And you know th- that argument we talked. Uh, so perhaps you'd like to s- respond in general to this sort of universe of consequential arguments.
1: Well, the blood in the streets, you know, we talked about in our episode with Bowden Paulson, and and you have said here, listen. The framers of the 14th Amendment thought, you know, a time or two about blood in the streets, and, and they put something in the Constitution, and how about we just follow that? Or were we worried about blood in the streets if we enforce, you know, the idea that um, separate's inherently unequal, and therefore we got to get rid of Jim, Jim Crow? We enforce constitutional rights. We enforce constitutional duties. Right. We enforce then- the Constitution. His final okay. sentence, Larry's, is the following, that we must defeat Trump politically, not through clever lawyer interpretations of ambiguous constitutional text. And I say the text is not ambiguous. This is not clever lawyer. The own lawyer thing, this is just straightforward applying the law. Now, I'm going to mention one other thing because it's very important in this whole situation to understand that at the end of the day, Congress actually may play a role in judging who's eligible and who's not. And my reason for thinking that in part is based, this is going to connect amazingly to, to Larry Lessig. My reason is based in part on the claim that the relevant disqualifying misconduct may very well have occurred even after the Electoral College has, has met and cast its votes. That happened on January 6th. That's not a hypothetical. And if someone is disqualified because they've engaged in insurrectionary action after having taken an oath, they're not eligible and you can't count their vote. Even if they were eligible, let's imagine, when the electors cast their vote. Now, this happened. And my friends Mike and Will said, oh, we're not, we're not sure that that's true, Akil. And, and I said, the Greeley precedent establishes this, and I actually have written about the Greeley precedent and testified before Congress about the Greeley precedent. Let me remind you of the Greeley precedent. It's 1872-73. Horace Greeley, great newspaper man, go West, young man, runs for president against Ulysses Grant. He loses. Fine. But then he actually dies, and some electors nevertheless cast their votes for him. Now, it doesn't really matter in the end, because he's lost either way, but Congress actually, when the electoral ballots were opened up, chose to not count his votes. Now, I'm not sure that that was the right decision, but for technical reasons that I'm not gonna go into, that we did talk about, Andy, and I think in our third episode ever, but this precedent does show that Congress is a judge. And like, in effect saying, you're not eligible if you're dead. Okay, well, if you're not eligible if you're dead, you're not eligible if you're not 35. You're not eligible if you're barred by 143. You're not eligible now if you're you know already have served two terms. What have you? You're not eligible if you were convicted and disqualified in an impeachment court, and Congress is the judge. Now, how does that relate to Larry Lessig? You might say, because there is a Supreme Court case, and it screwed the pooch, and it screwed the pooch unanimously. And I railed against it in the third episode, I believe, and Larry Lessig. Actually, was the lawyer in that case. He deserved to win unanimously in that case, and he lost unanimously in that case, in part because I think he he missed the, the easy and obvious textual points, And I'm gonna read the audience what he missed. But here's you know, here are a couple of big, big points about the Chiaflo case. Chiafalo, nine to nothing, says in general, states can in effect tell electors what to do and punish them. If they pledge to vote for X and then they don't vote for X, a state can punish them. And I think this is completely wrong. Electors actually get to exercise independent judgment. And here's one of the reasons they have to be able to do that. Because they pledged to vote for Greeley and now he's dead. And, you know, and when they're meeting as electors, I think they of course should be allowed to say, well, I was pledged to Greeley, but he's dead. So I'm gonna actually cast my electoral college vote for his vice presidential running mate or something like that. And the Supreme Court has a footnote. It says, well, you know, we acknowledge that in a death situation might be different, we don't decide that. And I say, well, nice try, Justice Kagan. She writes for a majority of the Supreme Court, uh, excuse me, unanimous Supreme Court, but the problem isn't just death. Suppose he got struck by lightning. Suppose there's proof positive that no one had before that he's a foreign agent, you know, an agent of an enemy of the United States. Suppose he's been impeached and convicted and disqualified after the election and you pledged to vote for him and before the electoral college meets and he's now no longer eligible. The point is because different things happen at different times, it's not just a problem about death. You're gonna have to sometimes do something different from what you pledged to do. So footnote 8 was, um, I think this was footnote 8 of Chaffalo was not remotely satisfying. But here's a secondary, and that's the same argument, Andy. That argument, which I made three years ago in Chaffalo, is the same one I'm making today that, of course, Congress may have to be the judge, especially of certain things that, that happen late in the game. Second point. Larry Lessig deserved, he was the lawyer in that case. He deserved to win 9-0. He lost 9-0, in part because he didn't make the right textual and historical originalist argument. Because deep down, that's not where his skill set is. He's brilliant at many other things. The internet, he's such an imaginative, creative you know, fellow. But this one, he, he writes the following note. It's footnote seven of his brief in the Chiafalo case, because the constitution talks about electors casting their vote by ballot, okay? And uh, footnote seven of this brief of his, this is from you know many years ago, 2020, says, some founding era sources say that the founders intended the votes of electors to be by secret ballot, and then he cites an originalist source, okay? And then he actually says, and this is unfortunate, very unfortunate. He says, well, there's ambiguity about this or something. Any dispute about secrecy is not relevant. Okay. And I'm thinking this is supremely relevant. This wins the case for you because the whole point of secrecy was so that you could vote, you know, however you want. Now, of course, if the state is un- it, it casts all its electoral votes, for X, then we know that you cast your electoral vote for X. But if if a state doesn't cast all its votes for X, we're not supposed to even know who voted for X and who voted for Y, who voted for Z, even if you all pledge to vote for X. The secrecy was all about was one of many provisions designed to secure the independent judgment of the electors, in, in fact. Okay. And, and that was a great word for you, and it had a deep logic and spirit behind it. And you tossed it away by saying, "Well, that was kind of an irrelevant point." Okay, that, and you—you you, you deserve to win, Larry. You okay. know, for many other reasons, you deserve—you deserve to win. But you actually lost unanimously, in part because you didn't make the right originalist argument.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to to drive a point through that, I think you kind of skipped quickly over why he wins the case. I mean, if indeed the vote is not unanimous. The whole point of the of the laws here is to prosecute the particular elector that didn't that was faithless that didn't vote the way he had pledged or she had pledged, but you don't know which one it is if they're secret. Yes. How could you? So the whole thing is ridiculous, Um, and you know unless they were unanimous, but one could certainly imagine a situation where they're not unanimous. So. So, so that, that's how it wins the case, because you, don't, you can't identify, if it's secret, you can't identify the person you, you want to prosecute.
1: And they made a second argument that the world might be different. So it's consummately faithful. To what the elect what the voters who picked you really would want you to do if there's been an intervening change of facts, such that, you know, if they knew about George Santos, what you now know, you know, they went to vote for George Santos in the first place or something. Okay, why does why are you pointing all this out? What does this have to do with
0: what yeah, yeah, it's Larry Lessig both times, but what does that have what is but why? Why are you pointing out his earlier error in the context of what because, we're
1: talking about? Today? Um Larry is not on some of these uh, originalist matters, he's, this is not actually his, he's brilliant in many other ways, but this is not his comparative advantage. And he's making the same kind of mistake here, not paying attention to what officer really is and isn't and what it's all about and what it's ambiguous. That's the same thing he said about the word ballot. And he was, and, and unfortunately, you know, because he didn't make that, he lost a case unanimously that he deserved to win. And and he wants the Supreme Court to be unanimous here. So do I. But I want them to be unanimous, not on the basis of some clever lawyer interpretation of an ambiguity, but damn it, the core meaning of officer includes the president, of course and obviously. And it's about future insurrections and not the current one. And that's not because there's any ambiguity in any of this. You're making... My friend, I love you the same mistake here that you made, you know, back in the Chiafalo case. So this is interesting to me. It's the same kind of mistake.
0: Akhil, as we go through this, of course, you know, we've, it, these things are so interesting. There's a lot to say and no way we're getting through all these uh, pundits. Uh, so the best laid plans, but uh, we will do it. Um, this is clearly going to be a several part episode. So we're going to go through it in, in subsequent episodes. But we had one of the uh, articles that by a scholar that we you know pretty much disagree with. Um, so let's have one from a scholar that we pretty much agree with. So in the Harvard Gazette, um, this is not quite an article by a scholar. It's an interview with a scholar. So the great Lawrence Tribe, is interviewed by the Harvard Gazette, so there's a Q&A here, and uh, let's go through some of the things that, uh, that he says. So first of all, your sense of the overall tone of the article.
1: I, first of all, I just want to say, you know, I love Larry Lessig, and I love Larry Tribe. They can't both be right. I'm with Larry Tribe on this one. I'm not the only one. You could say, well, he's you know on the left. He's joined at the hip with uh, another friend of mine, Mike Ludig, who you know in the small world department was Mike Paulson's boss um, way back when. So this isn't a partisan thing. The two Larrys, the two Harvard Larrys, the two Conlaw Harvard Larrys are on opposite sides on this. They can't both be right. I'm with Larry Tribe on, on almost all these issues down the line. And it's also not just a disagreement among people on the left, but Tribe is allied with Mike Ludig, and he's on the right, and so is Paulson, so is Bo, they're FedSoc types. But there are people on the right who are skeptical, like the great uh, Michael McConnell. Our friend Steve Calabresi has taken uh, an unfortunate position about presidents and and officers. So our disagreements here among uh, folks on the left and among folks on the right, but this piece, it's in the... The Harvard Gazette, don't hold that against anyone, uh, we say jokingly as Yaleys, is an outstanding piece for a general audience in which Larry Tribe is absolutely at the top of his game, in my view. And we can go through some of the issues, but my general take on this one is extremely positive. And my general take on Larry Lessig's was, as you heard, very sharply negative, alas
0: you know i think that right off he starts off with a very interesting term very interesting characterization of the colorado supreme court decision he says it's the most important pro democracy ruling in recent history and i find that very interesting and he because he said and he goes on to say really why i find it interesting because he says a lot of people are mistakenly thinking that there's something undemocratic about excluding an insurrectionist who attempted to overthrow our relatively democratic constitution
1: from the ballot. Brilliant, and Mark Graber talked a little bit about this, but there are two or three ways of focusing on it. One is, Larry, let's take seriously your first, Larry, let's excuse me, let's take very seriously your first paragraph that Trump is a mortal threat to the Republic. Well, if he's a threat to the Republic, then actually democracy isn't, you know, one person, one vote, one more time and then we're done. And if, and if Donald Trump poses that real risk, there's a real problem from a democracy point of view if it's one person, one vote in 2024, and then never again. That's a democracy problem. It's not that we don't like Donald Trump, it's that we think he could end democracy. So that's, that's one point if we're consequentialist. But second, looking backwards, one of the reasons that we we're worried about this is because he might try to pull another insurrection, you know, ending all elections, an insurrection against the Constitution. And we might think that because he's done it once before. We're not hallucinating about all of that. So that's the second kind of related point. And a third, and, and section three is all about this, you see. But a third point is we can't actually encourage people who once they win an election, fair and square, to pull this sort of thing. And Donald Trump did win an election, fair and square, in 2016. Now, he didn't get more popular votes, but that wasn't the rule. It was more electoral vote. And we, uh, supporters of uh, Hillary Clinton, didn't riot and have blood in the streets. We acquiesced, okay? But once he was in power, he did stage an insurrection against the Constitution, according to the Colorado findings. And if so... You can't disregard that because okay, that will just embolden Trump in the future. And if we were lucky enough to have, you know, have future elections after that, other people in the future, they're going to be emboldened you know, saying, well, we don't take Section 3 of the 14th Amendment seriously. It's just a clever lawyer's thing or it doesn't apply you know, after the introduction of 1861. And of course, it does, or doesn't apply to the presidency. No, we're going to create very, very bad incentives if we actually blink this thing away Rather than, and that's a democratic cost, okay? To, so that people actually think that if they somehow manage to win, they can, you know, pull off a, a coup d'etat or an insurrection using the power of government. No, we can't let them do that, whether their name is Jeff Clark as a lower level functionary in the Justice Department or Donald Trump. We can't let them do that. And so Larry Tribe is just right in showing you actually. That, as it were, democracy is on both sides of this. Understood narrowly, oh, it's keeping someone off the ballot, but understood broadly, it's about preserving democracy in the same way that we say, oh, we have rules about two terms for the presidency because we don't want someone in power to make themselves indispensable. Okay, so in the moment you can't vote for George W. Bush or Barack Obama, that seems undemocratic, but it's in the service of democracy understood more broadly. You can't vote for someone who's 34 years old. Akhil has explained in earlier work, that's in some part because we don't believe in dynasty. There's a democratic argument against dynasty. And if people are allowed to be present at age 30 or 23, for that matter, 17, it's more likely, most likely to be the famous son of a famous father. And that's actually not so democratic just to pick someone because his name is Donald Trump Jr., even though he's, in this hypothetical, 16 years old or 33, for that matter. So if you look at it, from a certain point of view, oh, it's anti-democratic to put someone, keep someone off the ballot. Yes, from one point of view, but from another point of view, it's very democratic for all sorts of reasons. And the final democratic argument is because it's in the constitution. The constitution was actually adopted and amended democratically. So let's take that seriously. And if you don't like it, vote against. You know, vote for an amendment. And by the way, and this is a point that we'll come back to again and again. Uh, Gerard says, Donald Trump, um, even if you take Section Three totally seriously, he's not for, you know, forever ineligible. Congress, if it wants, democratically, could actually by a two-thirds vote, give him amnesty, give him a pardon, restore his eligibility. So Andy, you're right to, ca- to focus on Larry Tribe from the beginning, making a structural argument that actually this is pro-democracy. Well, I think he
0: says, you know, and I and I think his words are really very carefully chosen because he says this is an insurrectionist who attempted to overthrow our relatively democratic constitution from the ballot. He recognizes that there are aspects of the constitution that are not democratic, but that the, that is but that isn't the only value in the constitution. So, you know, Lincoln says, you know, shall all the laws but one, you know, when he talks about habeas corpus because he understands that you can't have, you know, suicidal provisions in the name of something else. It probably is true that it's undemocratic in a way to say you can't vote for somebody that's under 35 years old, something like that. Okay, but people don't recognize that.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So, so you know, I don't think we have to characterize, we, we don't have to jump through hoops and characterize the Constitution as well, anything that would lead to the the defeat of the Constitution is undemocratic. That may not be the case, but 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 even though that it, that might be democratic, it still isn't a good idea. Um, and and so there are things that protect the Constitution from, from itself, in a way. The two-term yeah. amendment is a very good example of that because a dynasty, it's not democratic in the sense that it doesn't further democracy, but it isn't necessarily undemocratic in and of itself. Was it undemocratic when FDR was elected to his third term? I mean, it's it's hard to say. Um, but, but nevertheless, you know, the people made a decision that, uh, you know, as a nation, that we were in the interests of the nation. We, we we think that preventing dynasty is more important than this narrow element of democracy, and therefore we're going to institute that as a rule, and we're going to follow that rule, and if we decide we don't like the rule, we can amend the Constitution again, you know, later.
1: I think we might distinguish between, you know, at least two or three different concepts. The dictator idea, the dictator for life, that's, you know, two terms, three terms, four terms, five terms, that's the Putin problem, that dictator for life. That's slightly different than the dynasty problem about, you know, picking some little princeling who just happens to be born with a famous name, but doesn't have a track mm-hmm. record of their own. That's what 35 is all about. So 35 years is about young people who really don't have a track record of their own, hereditary dynasty. Two term is about, you know, the Putin problem, dictator for life. To mention one other provision, of course you're disqualified if you've been convicted in an impeachment court and you're sentenced to disqualification. So then again, even if the people want to vote for you for president, you're not eligible because you've misbehaved having served in government before. The impeachment provisions of the constitution are very similar in their structure, in certain respects, to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And and no one says, gee, that will lead to blood in the streets that you can't actually vote for someone who's been impeached and disqualified by the High Court of Impeachment.
0: In all fairness, we, we should say, we should disclose that we on this podcast ourselves expressed certain reservations about disqualification as a punishment for impeachment. Not that it shouldn't be in the Constitution or it shouldn't be an option for Congress or that it was somehow wrong that it be there, but that we, we don't necessarily advocate that, that Congress do that in all circumstances. And so when January 6th first happened and we didn't know the extent of Trump's involvement, we said, well, we're not sure about disqualification at that point. Not Section 3, we kept, impeachment.
1: We um, kept an open mind. You know, we have not been preventing Trump by hook or crook from the beginning. And there he attributes certain motivations to folks. That's not been us. Now, in a future episode, Andy, we'll talk about some of the differences between impeachment and Section 3. One big difference is in impeachment, it's, it's just a sentencing discretion to disqualify or not. And here, our friends will bode and Mike Paulson especially, but also Georges have said, the law is the law. We just apply section three. It's not a matter of discretion. You know, you, you can't be 34 years old. You can't be someone who is not a citizen, um, not a, actually a natural born citizen. You can't be a third-termer. You can't be a disqualified person uh, because of an impeachment ruling. Just, the, law is the law is the law. That's different from the choice to act disqualify someone in an impeachment court. That's a, that's a different issue. And here the choice would be, okay, Trump is disqualified under Section 3, but Congress actually is allowed by two-thirds vote to restore his eligibility. That's what would be the relevant choice. And we'll talk about that more in a future episode, Andy.
0: Yes. Um, but I do think, though, that, the, that this is an interesting point, okay? The idea that, that the law is the law. And well, to the extent that Section 3 you know, might be somewhat undemocratic in its conception, um, in a way, that's almost the point, okay? I mean, listen to what Larry Tribe says here. The whole point of this provision of the 14th Amendment was that we cannot trust anyone to hold any office of power all the way up to the presidency if that person took an oath to support or uphold the Constitution and then engaged in a systematic effort to engage in an insurrection against it. So in other words, yes, we can't trust the person. Not that we can't trust the people. Uh, We can't trust this individual. And therefore, we're going to remove from the people their ability to elect this person. So the whole point here is not to make a judgment about whether it's democratic or not democratic. It's clearly, it clearly hasn't undemocratic you know, thrust to it, but nevertheless, it is the law, and it was passed knowing that. So, therefore, you know, the, the argument to say, well, it's undemocratic, let the people choose, it flies directly in the face of why it's there in the first place, which is to remove this option from <laughs> the people in a circumstance like this. So, uh, so, uh, so that, you know, and again, there is a democratic uh, alternative, which is, as you pointed out, Congress can grant amnesty, and that allows someone who violated you know, Section 3 you know, flagrantly, did everything, the, the people's option to vote for that person can be restored by their representatives, democratically elected, in Congress.
1: And in previous episodes, Mark Graber made the point about protecting democracy with this provision, and so did Will Bode. And Gerard, Gerard also said, here's why actually there's a safety valve of removal of disqualification. And you take Gerard's point, and you add it to Mark's point, and you add it to Will's Bode's point, and very powerful. And Tribe gets it, and I think he says it very, very well in this piece. Yeah, good job on that one. Okay.
0: So the next question that he's asked uh, is to assess the dissents.
1: And so he he, he says that, that they're weak. Since we're talking about different scholars and what their skill sets are, you know, Larry Tribe is less of an originalist than some others, than Will Bode, Mike Paulson. But he is a reader of cases par excellence. He's the greatest doctrinalist of his generation. He knows how to read a case with care. And he actually reads, he's asked, what do you think about the dissents? And he says, the dissents are weak, extremely weak surprisingly weak. And two are now irrelevant, he says, because they're basically about state law issues that aren't uh, directly relevant to the United States Supreme Court. So, you know, we don't need to go into all details. We'll put these things up on our website. This is what Larry Tribe does for a living, is um, read cases very carefully and say smart things about them.
0: I do think, though, that his analysis of the, uh, some more dissent is worth going through, because this is these are questions that kind of are still sitting there uh, for the Supreme Court. Um, and he talks about, uh, so let me read you what he says about that. He says, it begins and ends, this is the, the Samore dissent, which he does not like. He says, with the false papa's proposition that, quote, our government cannot deprive someone of the right to hold public office without due process of law, unquote. There is no right to hold public office, Tribe says. When one holds a particular public office that can't be taken away without a fair trial-like hearing, but the opportunity to run for office, especially the highest office in the land, is not a right in
1: that sense. So his entire frame of reference is wrong. I'm not sure I agree with all of that in quite the way he says it, but I just do want to highlight for our audience, especially our CLE crowd, how close that is to some of the things we talked about in the Jarcus the Jarkis-y episode, about the difference between when the government is withholding a benefit from you, like social security payment, unemployment compensation, some sort of welfare right on the one hand, and when it's actually taking away from you something that you have, like money in your pocket. So Larry is building on, you know, a very, very large body of case law on how you often get more process if something is being taken away from you than if something is simply not being given to you. And, and this is what we talked about in the Jarcusy episode, Andy, in some detail.
0: Now, which side of that line does this fall on? Is this, do, you, do you believe this is something that's being taken away from you or a benefit that you just aren't getting?
1: I think he may take a stronger position than I would. I, I think my position would simply be that the, this uh, all the process here was very fulsome and fair. And he does say that as well. He says the, it was quite elaborate process and entirely fair. So I think that's his a better and stronger point and, and sufficient.
0: Okay. and But of course, this is going to be an issue as to whether it was sufficient process. Um, Correct. So how much more process do you want than this? Um-
1: there are two points. Yes, Sam Moyne talks about a jury, and we'll talk about Sam Moyne in the next episode. My friend, um, and Sam is my colleague and friend, Richard Pildis talks about how this hearing, I think the the litigants didn't have subpoena power the way they might in, in certain other contexts, because this is part of the election code, which provides for a kind of a more streamlined adjudicatory process. And again, it's somewhat similar to what we talked about in jarcacy. okay? You've got like an administrative proceeding, and it's not quite the same as a common law trial with a judge and jury, but it still might suffice, and then you can challenge it in a court. And here, you actually had a court proceeding. It was a streamlined court proceeding, but as I said, I think fully satisfying the constitutional minima.
0: In your view, then, the fact that it was under the election law framework is not a due process problem.
1: No, you're allowed to have different processes for different kinds of issues, of course. But, um, it's all about what processes do. And the reason why people say, well, you're just making up things, You know, what, what makes elections different— because you got to hold the election on a timetable. And that means you got to keep the trains running. And that means you're going to have more expedited procedures, just like when it comes to social security benefits or veterans benefits, it's a kind of mass justice system that, you know, uh, by its nature is going to be more summary and quick.
0: And I guess this goes to your point about Congress that there has, someone has to eventually decide if there isn't enough time for
1: these other processes, then Congress can intervene at the end. Brilliant! That is, you know, why I think Congress has to be the ultimate backstop.
0: Okay, and then Professor Tribe is is asked, what's going, to, what is the court going to, the Supreme Court going to be talking about? And he said,
1: and so let's see, he goes through it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, just what he said, and he said it first. <laughs> From um, a different point of view, we said at first, because we had various podcast episodes talking about this, so we said the same thing because we're both playing by the same legal rules. Andy, the one thing that I most love, no, not most, but I especially love is one thing the court could theoretically, Supreme Court, decide as a legal matter is that the highest office in the land is exempt from all this, okay? Which is what our friend Larry is saying, oh, that, that, that you know, and, and Kurt, it might be true. Back to tribe. That's an absurd interpretation of the language and of the history, but that's the hook on which the trial court hung its final decision, and not to disqualify Donald Trump, okay? But the state Supreme Court rejected that for to nothing, and Larry is is very clear, you know, not only is he with us on that, he thinks that the contrary view is indeed, this is his word, absurd, which is the very word that the other Larry from Harvard said, oh, it's not absurd. And, and they can't both be right. And we're with Larry Tribe.
0: Interestingly, he's asked about how long the court's going to take. And this is kind of relevant to our statements a few m- minutes ago about, you know, elections and, t- and deadlines and things like that. And he says, and he refers back to Bush versus Gore when he, he argued uh, in that case. And he says, well, there were two arguments. I, uh, mine was on December 4th. David Boies was on December 11th, and the Supreme Court decision was December 12th. If there's a will, there's a way. Um, So it makes your point about election law having time-sensitive structures. And of course, all of this is what's lying in the background here. We're not going to have time to go through this today, but we will address it in subsequent episodes, is the argument that some people are making that, well- there's no criminal conviction out there for insurrection, so how can you make a determination that he engaged in insurrection? Um, so that, that argument is out there. We don't find it compelling at all, but, uh, but, it, this, it, but it's there.
1: Because they could have said criminal conviction. They know those words. They're in the English language, and they didn't say anything like that.
0: Well, in part because some of the things that 14.3 sec- that uh, deals with are not necessarily crimes. You know, being an enemy of the Constitution, you can do that in a way, or giving aid and comfort to enemies of the Constitution can be done in a way that isn't necessarily criminal. Just like, again, this is the analogy to impeachment, that high crimes and misdemeanors are not necessarily uh, things that you can be criminally convicted for. Good point. Okay, so so just to wind up um, on Professor on Tribe, I think he, he has a great uh, last sentence. He's asked about the prosecution that's going on in Georgia. And then really what what he he turns the question around and he says, Do I think the Supreme Court will be affected by pure politics or by the threatened violence Trump keeps talking about if he's kept off the ballot? Your guess is as good as mine. And here's here's how he turns it on. He says, but if they want to be faithful to their oath, and this case is ultimately about being faithful to the oath to support the constitution they will have to set those things aside
1: and note that america's preeminent doctrinalist here has been making some classically originalist arguments about the meaning of 143 its words its history its spirit its logic and at the end reminding us which originalists especially do that the fidel- the oath is actually to the Constitution. It's actually not to the precedents, a Solicitor General Prelogger or a Justice Kagan. It's it's actually to the Constitution itself. And originalists really emphasized that. And Tribe is a doctrinalist, but he also isn't so a believer very much in paying attention to constitutional text history and structure. He's both. So I loved it that he came back to that classic originalist point. And it is a common core. It's a focal point for people on the court of all stripes, how about just let's let's st- be faithful to the Constitution itself. Let's play it straight on the Constitution. And Larry Lessig, this is not a clever lawyer reading something into an ambiguous provision. It's not that at all. The words and the history and the logic are crystal clear, and we just have to enforce them.
0: And next week we'll talk more about that in the context of what many other people have to say and. I assume we'll update you on developments uh, that may occur during the, the coming weeks. So more to come on Section 3. And by the way, one of these days we'll get back to more versus the United States oral argument that we've been promising you. But this is on everyone's mind uh, as judging But from the many questions that we received this week from our audience, all of which were on 14.3. So thank you for those, and hope we're addressing some of them in this discussion. We'll be back with more
1: next week. Thanks, Akil. Thank you, Andy. Happy anniversary. Thank you. It's a new vibration Crystal blue persuasion Crystal Blue persuasion